one of the things a patient said to me that I'll just never forget was this teenager who said, you can't see it, but I'm in pain. And I think that that is a really important piece of the puzzle that maybe doesn't always get addressed in the clinic setting. That's Jennifer Wilson, executive director of the rheumatology patient advocacy group, Cassian Friends. She's our guest on this special COVID-19 series episode of Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. In our previous episodes, we looked at a few of the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way we practice medicine and deliver care. Today, we will be getting a perspective from the other side. I'm joined today by Jennifer Wilson. She is executive director of Cassie and Friends Society, a patient and parent-led organization whose mission is to transform the lives of the 24,000 children and their families affected by juvenile arthritis and other rheumatic diseases in Canada. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. So we're really excited to have you. Um, We really want to get the perspective of patients um, during the time of COVID because we've had a lot of time to talk about the perspective of doctors. So maybe to lead us off, can you tell us how Cassie and Friends got started and what its main role is now? Yeah. So Cassie and Friends was started by a group of parents in BC who, together with their clinic team, um, found themselves, I guess, a little less alone, worried and frightened um, by their child's diagnosis when they had an opportunity to get together and start sharing sharing about some of the challenges they were experiencing, um, both from what the clinic was hearing uh, in their patient appointments and then also what parents were experiencing day to day as well as patients themselves. And through that kind of, you know, back and forth dialogue, um, the first kind of endeavor uh, they set out on was to um, help endow the Ross Petty Research Chair at the University of British Columbia um, in joint effort with the Arthritis Society. And that was very, very successful. Um, But what became really, really apparent was that, well, everyone wanted a cure for their kids. People were struggling every single day. And so that's where Cassie and Friends stepped in and started creating some uh, patient and parent-focused support programs, educations, opportunities to connect. Um, And really, that's where our community started to grow. Um, We've as you said, been operating in BC since 2007. And over the last couple years, we've really made an effort to expand um, and kind of just check out what other pediatric rheumatology centers were doing with their patient groups uh, and found that there was a gap. And so we've had the opportunity to connect widely across Canada and um, now have a number of active Cassie and Friends chapters across Canada. So, so definitely like from my perspective in medicine, I can like think of a a couple of gaps, but I can't even imagine all of them that are affecting patients. Can you give us some examples of some of like the major gaps that that Cassie and Friends has played a role to try and fill? I mean, so one is just, you know, general public awareness that kids get arthritis, that it is more than aches and pains and and what people might experience or know from, you know, their grandparents or osteoarthritis or overuse of joints, that these are, you know, really devastating, often um, sudden autoimmune diseases as well as autoinflammatory diseases that affect children and, and are a family disease. I mean, this affects the parents, it affects the siblings who get dragged to medical appointments. Um, and, you know, the kids are on some 
you know, pretty, you know, scary paths when they first start out with a lot of unknowns. And so a lot of parents end up relying on, I mean, Dr. Google is sort of well known in our community. And of course, you know, in the arthritis community, there is a lot of misinformation on the internet. So the chance for parents to, you know, access evidence-based information through our organization, through education, to speak with experts outside of that like highly emotional um, patient visit, uh, and also just to hear like the experience and journeys of others and you know, ultimately see that while they're dealing with a, maybe a medical crisis at diagnosis or their first flare, which just sometimes guts them and they realize this is a chronic condition, that ultimately these kids can achieve whatever they put their minds to with the right care and treatment. Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, education piece there, because I think um, doctors and, and totally myself included, like, I think we think we're good communicators. Uh, and we think that we, you know, talk about things in reasonable patient language. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you mentioned something else in there, which is that like, when you're sitting in an appointment, finding out that you or, or perhaps your child has a chronic condition, how much of what was just said to you is just going to go right over your head? Like mm-hmm. the main ticket, the main takeaway from that appointment was, hey, I have this nasty thing I have to deal with now. And I was healthy like three months ago. So that's a pretty big deal. So uh, how do you actually how do you actually organize like that educational aspect? How are you guys communicating with patients in a way that doctors are doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals are not like where are we falling short there? Well, I guess in in line with your series, I'd have to um, separate that between pre-COVID and (laughs) (laughs) post-COVID. So pre-COVID, obviously, we have our our website, CassieMFriends.ca, where we try to share a lot of patient stories and experiences. But we also organized um, what we call family day conferences. And our family day conferences are um, sort of multi-tracked, where um, families have the opportunity to come together. Parents attend expert educational sessions throughout the day. Um, and then also have the opportunity to connect with other parents in like a roundtable networking setting. And kids have just that opportunity to meet other kids with the same condition as them or that take the same medication uh, as well as as they get older into their teen years start you know having an educational component themselves to help them through transition of course that all changed dramatically um, with the (laughs) arrival of covid Uh, just for perspective our bc family day which we've held for 12 years had approximately 400 Um, participants or attendees each year, uh, totally free from all around the province. So people were flying from, you know, Prince George, Queen Charlotte Islands, they were coming to access this event. This year, we were um, scheduled and had already open registration for family days in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, in partnerships with the pediatric rheumatology teams there, um, had over a thousand people registered across those three cities and then had to cancel uh, those events um, until further notice. What our organization, you know, immediately did um, was, you know, education can't wait, especially at a time of increased stress, so many questions. So we launched a virtual education series 
And these are uh, similar to our family day, an expert-led session with an opportunity. And this is, you know, for us, this is key, a live Q&A where parents can get their question answered um, and have an open dialogue with experts, again, outside of a clinical setting. That, that, that's really incredible. That's a, an agile pivot to a different way of delivering that advocacy. So I'm wondering, you mentioned that everything's changed in the time of COVID. I'm wondering if you can give us some examples of how COVID's actually affected juvenile rheumatology patients and their families. In the very beginning, so the very first weeks when everything started shutting down, I mean, what we were hearing from families was just, you know, right away that flush of panic and worry. Um, you know, it's interesting, rheumatology families, especially juvenile arthritis, they're, they're like fairly used to the idea of self-quarantining. Like every time someone gets the flu at school or, right. you know, they're on their way to Thanksgiving dinner and grandpa has a cold, they're, they're used to the idea of pulling back and saying, we're, you know, we're not going to participate in this event. Mm-hmm. I think what was most alarming, um, well, of course, you know, appointments were being canceled without explanation right away or or we will let you know um so a lot of that worry that people were going to be forgotten um you know we heard from a lot of parents who'd waited so long for their mri appointments for their child um and then they were being canceled and i mean that in itself is you know something they had anticipated and waited for um a lot of worry about you know going to the hospital like often with juvenile arthritis patients the whole family comes the mom the dad the siblings come and so to lose some of those you know comfort supports of this is how we approach our our child's care um was really offsetting um but also just the you know like i think just hearing all these words in the news that if you go from nobody's ever heard of juvenile arthritis and people, you know, don't even really believe you half the time that your child needs these medications or that there are these challenges to everyday hearing your child's medications in the news, the inflammatory responses, um, all of those kind of key words. I think there was just so much panic um, in addition to, you know, hearing that those who are immunocompromised are the most susceptible, which was, you know, the, the early warning. So what I saw was that um, our particular patient community went into quarantine much earlier than the rest of the community. And many of them are to a large degree still, you know, keeping sort of a safe, safe circle around others. And so, you know, extreme social isolation, um, trying to navigate virtual appointments. If you can imagine trying to get your three-year-old's joints up on it, <laughs> yeah, a lot of your listeners will be able to imagine. Um, and also just that, that physical nature of uh, how they assess their child. It's, it's touching them, it's looking at their joints, it's feeling them, it's you know, looking at how they move. So I think there was just you know, so much stress what sort of stories have you started to hear as time's gone on? Because the, the pandemic's dragged out. Hope, you know, at the beginning, we kind of thought maybe maybe it would be over a little sooner. And now it's mm-hmm. looking like it's going to drag on for sure. Uh, what are you hearing these days? I think, you know, another, uh, in addition to our virtual education program, another sort of really vulnerable community in our community we identified were um, teens and young adults. Um, Their lives, you know, 
potentially more than any others, we're on this, you know, fairly predictable trajectory of graduating high school, potentially going away to post-secondary or starting employment. Um, so there has been um, a lot of um, sort of worry and stress about how that tra transition period is going to go, where they're going to coordinate care, if they can, um, you know, execute the plans that they've had, as well as a real um, being out of school for kids uh, cause a real decrease in physical activity all around. So kids get a lot of their movement and play and teens get a lot of their social interactions from school to have that like critical social support removed from their lives um, definitely caused, I, I, you know, we've heard from a lot of parents um, concerned about their teens um, who either are having like increased pain and of course stress, you know, is, uh, can cause um, flares and, and discomfort, um, as well as the emotional side. So just, you know, again, feeling really uncertain, feeling really alone. And we've tried to respond to those with um, some uh, youth programming. So we've been organizing uh, teen, both social events online, like online game nights, trivia nights, etc., cetera, um, as well as a program we're calling Teen Talks, which is where We've engaged young adults um, with lived experience with rheumatic disease to um, do um, sort of breakout group discussions over Zoom where the teens get together in smaller groups to talk about really specific things like back to school, um, physical activity, eating well um, during COVID where your parents are out at work and you're at home and your virtual education and, and how all those things can affect mood as well as, as their physical well-being. You know, that that definitely strikes me as something that if you have a 15 minute or a half hour, 45 minute appointment with your doctor, there's there's sometimes a, a difference in terms of like the, the goals of the patient for that appointment and the goals of the doctor and the goal of the doc uh, or, or the nurse or the healthcare team is to like make sure that your medications are appropriate and that there's like a, a careful treatment plan that you've looked at all the investigations and physical exam and all this and and maybe one of the big questions for the patient is, is all the things that you guys are dealing with. Mm -hmm. All those aspects of living that are not just about like the medications, but about social life, going to school, staying fit, um, you know, eating well, all those things that I wonder if we're not doing a good enough job of uh, covering during our standard follow-up. I'm wondering if, because we saw this from the medical side, was there any concern in your community about access to medications throughout the pandemic? So uh, absolutely. I mean, especially as I mentioned before about with some of these, you know, common um, or common to the rheumatology community, medications being in the news, we had parents writing us saying, you know, should I be worried about methotrexate supply? I hear people are ordering extra or they've paid out of pocket. Um, a, a lot of worries about medication hoarding, Definitely, there was, um, you know, worries about um, some of the drugs being used in clinical trials overseas and if there would be supply issues. Um, definitely, you know, heightened worry about their access, even, even down to um, uh, some people were able to have their child's biologic mailed to them as mm -hmm. opposed to going to pick them up at the pharmacy. Um, there was even a worry about exposures and contamination on packaging. So, I mean, heightened, heightened worry. 
So while the rest of society was hoarding toilet paper, some people were worried about um, getting access to their medications. Right. I mean, even if you, you know, because, you know, obviously a lot of pediatric rheumatology patients, some of them are driving four to five hours uh, to come to their clinic appointment. And um, while a lot of the appointments moved to virtual, um, there definitely were still cases that were being monitored in hospital. So the parents are going through their mind thinking, okay, from the time we leave our house in, let's say, Kelowna, and we drive to Vancouver, uh, how many times are we going to have to stop to go to the bathroom? How many times are we going to need to stop and get lunch? Because it's a five-hour drive and this, that, and that, and we park at the hospital. So they're like running through their mind of not just we're traveling to our appointment, which is burden enough already on a lot of families, given the expense, the time, et cetera, not having childcare, needing to pack everyone into the car. But now they're, you know, that whole trip is fraught with, you know, potential risk and exposure. Do you think yeah. then that uh, some of the um, transition to telehealth and to video conferencing to do these appointments, like, are there, are there some benefits that patients are actually seeing from that? Because I certainly like get the sense that for some of my patients, they love it, and some of them hate it. And mm -hmm. I'm curious what the, the general feeling has been in, in uh, the pediatric community. Yeah, I remember this um, one parent who emailed and was like, is this going to stay? Like, can this stay, <laughs> this virtual care? Because this is amazing. And I mean, her general, you know, statement is like, it, it's a, it's a burden enough to our child and family to deal with, you know, daily pain, medications, and like all the limitations of juvenile arthritis. But we also are made to disrupt our child's life, our work, etc. Um, with a five-hour trip to see her specialist. And all of the sudden, here we are in the comfort of our home, um, hearing that she's doing fine, we're on the right track, and why would this ever go away? Like, why wasn't this here before? And can this please stay? Yeah. I, so I'm wondering, um, as advocates during the COVID pandemic, what do you think physicians are doing well and where can we improve? I think that, um, and I mean, when we say physicians or referring to physicians, I would want to, you know, include the, every allied health provider Absolutely. that is part of that child's team because totally. um, the parents and the families and the youth themselves, they, they rely on, I mean, their nurses are often a lifeline. The booking clerk is often a lifeline. Like this is a team. Um, that cares for that child and family. I think one thing they're doing so well is, um, I think just one, communicating with families um, to the best of their ability, answering those phone calls, those emails to the best of their ability, um, really just ensuring that parents know that there is no um, unnecessary or, or there is, there, they wanna make sure that the parents know that they can still contact them in all of the ways with all of the concerns they had pre-pandemic. And I know that, you know, one of the ways this came up at Cassie and Friends was a parent had reached out to us and um, this was like a, a, maybe a month or two into the pandemic. And she said, so I got a trampoline to try and keep my kids busy. Um, <laughs> 
because, you know, they're home and I'm trying to work. And, you know, she's like, do you have a, could you recommend a brace for my child with juvenile arthritis? Because um, she needs one for her ankle. And, you know, <laughs> it, it seems like such a simple question, but that's a really important role that Cassie and Friends plays is that as opposed to, you know, providing, you know, sure, we know lots of different braces, et cetera. But the point is, why do you think the child needs a brace? Is she experiencing new pain? Is there a, you know, a concern? And so what we were able to do was refer that parent appropriately back to her pediatric rheumatology team. She had actually not even ever been referred to physio before they she was able to connect with the physiotherapy as part of their team. And, and now the child is on a really great track to dealing with the issues. It's not just about having her comfortably jump on a trampoline. There's just so much more to it. And so I think sometimes Cassie and friends, you know, playing a little bit of that redirector back to um, when they should go to their medical team and, and when, you know, they need to talk to another parent just to hear an understanding ear is is a, is a really important um, complement to care. Um, and that's, you know, as Cassie and friends, I think that's what we try and do. We really try and be a part of that pediatric rheumatology care team um, as opposed to just like an external player. Yeah, I, I appreciate you correcting me at there, at there at the beginning. Um, the care of these children and adults with rheumatic conditions, definitely a team sport. So uh, you're absolutely right. I, I'm wondering what we can actually do better then. It sounds like um, we're doing some things okay, uh, some things really well, but where do we need to keep improving on? I think we kind of touched on it a little earlier. And I mean, one of um, the things a patient said to me that I'll just never forget was this um, teenager who at one of our family day conferences, she said, you know, you can't see it but I'm in pain. And I think um, that that is a really important piece of the puzzle that maybe doesn't always get addressed in the clinic setting is um, like we talked about. And I mean, I think pain can take on so many forms. It can be the pain of being socially excluded. It can be physical pain. Um, but I think that working with partners like Cassie and Friends or any patient organization or listening um, to the voices and engaging the voices of, of youth to really talk about what's important to them um, and incorporating that and into their care and making time for that, um, you know, in their patient visits is a really critical piece of the puzzle. And um, we're really proud to have a partnership with um, a, a consortium called Solution for Kids in Pain. Um, and, you know, one of the big parts of that is just how do we use um, research and like, you know, evidence-based information on all of the touch points a child might have with pain, whether that's the pain of their injection that they get every Friday, um, the pain of, you know, um, their blood draws, et cetera. But like, there are a lot of techniques that we can do to minimize the trauma of, of this particular disease and the treatments that, that it requires. Um, and I think that that's a really important piece. You know, you, you you deal with patients on a on a daily basis, or your organization does, and and so you've certainly heard a lot of stories. I'm wondering if you can reflect back to um, uh, healthcare practitioners, but also patients, any of the wisdom 
in, in addition to what you've told us, any additional wisdom that you can um, share with us? Yeah. You know, all summer long, or I spring right through to the fall, like Cassie and Friends as an organization, as a patient community, and um, not just a patient community, because our, our healthcare partners are a huge part of our community. And Cassie and Friends only works because we bring the patients and our healthcare partners together um, in a way that makes the whole community stronger. But all spring, summer, fall, like we were due to be together at all these events supporting juvenile arthritis and other rheumatic disease families. So whether that be patient healthcare conferences, um, our annual run walk teams, um, all of these like in-person meeting points that are so special to our community. What I think we learned from COVID-19 is to look for the positive in every situation. So, you know, maybe we're not there at in-person events, but we realize that we can still at home or in our own community, in our own bubble, be here together and find ways to connect, support, provide resources um, and get involved um, to work together towards you know, what our vision at Cassie and Friends is, which is a pain-free future for kids. So Jennifer, before I let you go, are there any resources you'd like to direct us to? Yeah, so uh, on our website, cassieandfriends.ca, um, we have really early on in um, the COVID situation, we launched a COVID command center that can be found straight from our website. Uh, this command center is the only pediatric rheumatology specific resource um, in Canada available to patients. Um, and it is uh, populated with information um, as well as a live FAQ um, that is um, handled by our medical advisory committee, which includes three pediatric rheumatologists from three separate centers across Canada. So if parents have questions, they're able to submit them there and have them answered by our medical advisory committee. And then we've also been regularly updating the site with um, guidance letters from the pediatric rheumatology medical community. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. And again, I would just encourage uh, anyone who wants to learn more about our organization or who would like uh, our organization to work more closely with their patient group and center to visit CassieandFriends.ca. That was Jennifer Wilson, Executive Director of Cassie and Friends Society. Since 2007, Cassie and Friends has committed over $2.5 million to research, awareness, connection, and support. More recently, under Jennifer's leadership, they began a rapid expansion to reach even more patients across Canada and to fuel their vision of a pain-free future for kids. The COVID command center she mentioned in the episode has been used to inform the COVID-19 related recommendations from the American College of Rheumatology. For more information and to support their mission, visit cassieandfriends.ca. That's it for this special COVID-19 episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. We are supported by funding from Scotiabank, the Canadian Medical Association, and MD Financial Management. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.